Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat the official podcast of Modern Pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to another exciting episode of Mod Path Chat. Our guest today is Dr. Alexander Meves, Associate Professor of Dermatology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Minnesota. Dr. Meves' strong translational research interest is focused on skin cancer and specifically melanoma, which is the topic of today's conversation. He is the co-inventor of the Merlin test for melanoma risk stratification. So in a way of disclosure, he will be touching on this test during today's general discussion on risk stratification methods for sentinel uh, lymph node uh, biopsies uh, in general. But uh, again, that test will be touched upon. Thank you, Dr. Mevis, for accepting my invitation. Thank you, George. Uh, thank you for that uh, lovely invitation. Um, yeah, I wanted to also say uh, right up front that uh, the Merlin test was developed here at Mayo Clinic, and um, I have a financial interest in the Merlin test. What is the uh, you know the standard of care now in risk stratification decision making? Do you do a sentinel or not when somebody uh, will give you a diagnosis of uh, melanoma, invasive melanoma, on one of your patients? So I would say that um, risk stratification itself has not changed that much yet, um, but there have been um, several sort of revolutions in, in melanoma therapy. We have um, new methods to treat patients with metastatic melanoma. Um, we treat patients earlier. Um, and so there have been a lot of changes um, that kind of affect the way we manage melanoma patients. And then at the same time, there's also been a push to kind of apply the concepts of precision medicine to, um, to, to melanoma and better individualize care. Um, and I think we're just uh, sort of at the beginning of this process, um, but it's starting. At the same time, I always think it's important. And when I wrote this article, it was just kind of, it reminded me where we come from 
um, when we talk about melanoma because we come from these dark ages where people presented with melanoma. Uh, the idea was to do as much as you can up front to save the, the patient from metastasis because once the melanoma metastasized, you know, there was very little that, that you could do. So the idea was to, you know, in the beginning to sort of really be aggressive sort of upfront. So we used to do these uh, sort of uh, elective lymph node dissections and then cell lymph node biopsy coupled to a completion lymph node dissection. Um, and then really we didn't have many other tools. I mean, surgery was really like the, the number one tool that we had available. So we gave it to many people and we did it quite aggressively. And I think we're still influenced by that thinking today because now we have drugs, but now the discussion is almost sort of going in that direction. Um, so if who should get adjuvant therapy? Should we give it to everybody, everybody right away in, a, in an adjuvant fashion? And and so I think a lot of people still have this idea that you need to give drugs early and, and uh, to, to as many people as you can. Um, but the question is, is could, could that paradigm be, be, be changing over time? Um, I mean, could it be better maybe to sort of wait till you to have a sort of like a sort of like a molecular relapse of some sort and then just treat those patients? And so you get into this thinking of precision medicine, right? Do we need to really expose everybody to everything right up front, not knowing who actually has high risk disease? Or um, can we can we maybe wait and develop new tools and shift that paradigm a little bit? Very well uh, said. Very well said. So it's, it's, it's a story in, in cancer management in general, right? Used to be more is better, now less is better, uh, but as long as it's precise and given to the people who are uh, doing less with people who don't need more. So, uh, and, and just to uh, make, you know, the treatments you're referring to are immune check inhibitors and uh, that really revolutionized uh, the outcome and, and probably started with melanomas before went to other solid uh, organs. So it's a great story. But the focus today is, is, is which is something I, I, I didn't realize because I don't do dermpath every day, is, uh, is that uh, to do sentinel lymph node by itself, you know, while it's, uh, prognostic, or, or and, but it, it, it's not treating anything. It's not even going to improve survival. It's, uh, it's just a local recurrence, right? It's probably delaying, uh, take care of local regional recurrence. Um, am I correct in, in, in understanding that's what you were writing in the paper? or? Uh, so that's a little bit a debate about the therapeutic value of um, the sentinel lymph node biopsy itself. Of course, it's a little bit strange because initially that procedure was devised to spare patients these these larger procedures. You just like take the sentinel, and if that's positive, you, you to cut out more. But um, now we just do the sentinel lymph node, um, and we've given up on completion lymph node dissection based on trials that were conducted in 2017, 2018 that that showed that you get a lot of side effects from this completion lymph node dissection, like lymphedema, but it doesn't really improve survival. So now people don't want to do that procedure anymore. Um, but the sentinel node today is probably um, mostly used to decide which patient should get, you know, adjuvant therapy and which patient does not need to get adjuvant therapy. So it used to be that only the node positive patients were eligible for, let's say, um, adjuvant immunotherapy or targeted therapy. But now even that world is shifting a little bit. And that now also the sort of the node negative patients um, 
have access to um, to adjuvant uh, immunotherapy, specifically those those patients we call stage two BC disease, which are the thicker primaries. But currently, these decisions on who to get Sentinel or not lymph node biopsy is based on pre- predominantly clinical parameters, and they're starting to to have you know few uh, gene expressions or more molecular uh, assays or tests that that can be uh, solicited to help in that decision. So can you can you touch upon uh, these two, the clinical and the molecular, and then uh, we'll focus on on uh, the combined assay that uh, that you your group uh, came up with and you propose in that review. Yeah. So currently, the thinking is that if you have a probability of having a nodal metastasis that exceeds five percent, you should consider doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy procedure. And so that roughly equates to having a melanoma of 0.8 millimeter breast depth, um, or maybe something thinner with um, ulceration, um, so T1B melanoma or greater. Um, you would you would be uh, above that that threshold of 5% metastasis risk. And that's how we would select patients for this procedure. Um, We know that certain other variables also kind of influence who has a positive node. Um, So like younger patients, for example, weirdly, um, you know, more frequently have positive nodes. And if you go to the extreme of things, like if you look at kids, with melanoma, they very frequently have positive nodes, but then also their nodal metastasis might be a little bit less meaningful in terms of prognosis and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, but typically right now um, we go by AJCC staging and we figure like everything that's T1B or higher um, has a risk of nodal metastasis that exceeds 5%. So um, we do um, this procedure. And now the question is, um, if you apply a molecular tool and let's say you're dealing with a T1B, T2A, like a type of melanoma that is a little bit above 5% metastasis risk, can you use that risk stratifier, that molecular risk stratifier, and then apply it and then push that sort of metastasis risk to below 5% um, in a patient that has a sort of like a low risk risk label attached to its melanoma? So, you know, just using the traditional staging system, the risk would be above 5% because patients T1B or T2A or T2B or something. Then you apply this sort of additional variable um, of a molecular classifier, and then that would be able to reduce the risk again to below that 5% threshold. So that is sort of like uh, the idea. And so I would I would take the bragging rights here and say that we were the first to focus on that specific clinical utility of sentinel lymph node biopsy um, positivity. And we developed this test that we call the Merlin test specifically for that clinical utility. So we didn't develop a test where we would say, oh, high risk of metastasis, but not associated with a specific actionable, you know, um, sort of utility. And, you know, and, and, and then you ask yourself sort of like a prognostic, just general prognostic test. And you ask yourself, yeah, okay, but what's the consequence of that test now? So mm-hmm. we specifically sort of developed this test for this question, who should get a sentinel lymph node biopsy and who should not. Um, and then, um, yeah, we took the approach of gene expression profiling and, um, you know, identified genes that are predictive of that specific. We'll, we'll come back to the list of genes, and and I wanted just to to emphasize. So, and 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 you hinted to that. So the idea is because five percent risk or above five percent risk, you end up in the current uh, 
current environment, 80, over 80% 80 of sentinel lymph nodes, even with doing the, based on clinical parameters, right, you end up with negative sentinel lymph node resections. So you're trying to uh, bring down that number because these people really uh, uh, didn't have. So yes, it's, it's good that they didn't have, but the procedure uh, didn't realize that till I read your paper is almost $20,000 cost procedure. And of course, uh, nothing is harmless to our patients. We even uh, Sentinel, despite being limited uh, relatively, uh, it still has uh, some implications on uh, for the patient. So, so the hoping is the molecular test combined with the clinical variant. And, and I want to emphasize uh, that the molecular test that you, you we're going to talk about is not the only, there were other gene expression, uh, right? 31 gene expression and 11 gene expression models, and there are nomograms for the clinical. Uh, but uh, but you see clearly you uh, uh, that there is a room for combining all that, and maybe the Maryland test is one option, right? Yeah, so um, common criticism about uh, molecular testing is, first of, first of all, you need to realize like let's let's think about these T1A melanomas, right? So these are the ones that have a metastasis risk of less than five percent to the regional lymph node. Um, and these are less depths, less than 0.8, yes. and no ulceration. Yes. And so for those, we don't do the sentinel lymph biopsy, right? Why? Because the, the risk of metastasis is very low. So, but there's still this trade-off that we make, right? So we don't do sentinel biopsy in all the T1A patients, like we do for the T1Bs, for example, because we, we, we're making this trade-off, right? So uh, we're sparing a lot of patients unnecessary surgery, but, but uh, at the same time, we, we allow ourselves to have a, you know, a, a, a false negative rate of, you know, or we, we have a rate of uh, sort of positive nodes that is less than 5%, but it, there's still sort of like some patients we overlook, right? Because we don't do this procedure on everybody. Um, so, when you now do molecular testing on melanomas that are a little bit thicker, you 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 are in for the same trade-off, right? So you stop doing the procedure on everybody. So you will miss some patients who actually do have a positive note, but you since you stop doing that procedure on everybody, you will miss those. But on the flip side, you don't have to do that. You, you save like you know ninety-five percent of patients who don't need that procedure. You spare them from having that procedure. So that's sort of like kind of the the trade-off we're trying to do for these uh, kind of thicker melanoma patients uh, by by applying this molecular test. Um, and right. uh, and and so yeah. So and of course um, we weren't like surprisingly uh, when I, just as we were like developing this Merlin test, um, another company came out. Um, called Castle Biosciences, and they developed also a gene expression-based test. And, and their discovery paper was published in 2015. But they took a kind of like a different approach uh, and by developing more of sort of like a prognostic test, you know, where you had like a class one and a class two. And if you were a class two, um, your your risk for relapse or your, your, your prognostic uh, sort of uh, expectation was uh, kind of reduced, like you were likely more likely to develop a relapse or distant metastasis or something like this. So it took more like this prognostic uh, sort of approach. Um, this, this test was designed for that specific sort of idea. Um, and uh, but we were always focused on this on this this question of who should get a sign of no biopsy or not, um, and so that's how we kind of differentiated ourselves uh, initially. And and of course then things have evolved a little bit. So for example, now um, 
you know, other, in the, other other companies are also kind of like focusing in on this idea of who should get us and have no biopsy or not. But I think uh, we we might we might have an edge um, because we we always specifically designed our model specifically for that utility. Um, um, but you know, uh, there, there's not been a comparison study done or anything like this, so I'm uh, you know I can't say for sure. There's also um, a group out of Germany that is developing a stratifier for stage two melanoma patients and sort of like trying to apply to this question of who 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 should get adjuvant therapy if no negative patients that um, that that are nevertheless having a thicker primary um, and 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 might benefit from adjuvant therapy and who should get treatment and who should not get treatment. Excellent. So, so you can see a future where at every step of decision making, there is uh, hopefully a molecular assay, uh, molecular diagnostic assay that can be offered and help clinicians decide. Now, this is a very them. interesting philosophical question, <laughs> or like, this is something that the future will decide is, are we going to um, decide everything necessarily upfront? Um, by, for example, applying a tissue-based classifier uh, to to melanomas, um, or is the future more sort of like what was reported for colon cancer, where um, they would get, get, get a stage two colon cancer, where they would chemotherapy only to patients who then eventually had a, a had a had a sign of a molecular uh, relapse, and and instead of treating everybody up front, you wait. would wait a little bit. Um, and that's for this question of um, who should get treatment. Um, um, yeah. So, uh, just just to touch briefly on uh, on the genes, they're basically related to uh, genes with functionality linked to melanoma invasiveness and metastasis and interaction uh, with uh, T cells. So, I see like uh, uh, interleukin eight uh, melanoma antigen recognized by T cell one, which is called MLANA, uh, and what have you. Uh, so, so these are the combination of gene, and there are eight genes in 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 this Merlin test combined again with the CP, which is the two elements that you mentioned, which are the Breslow thickness and the ulceration. Is that correct? That's correct. No, it's actually, it's Breslow thickness and patient age. Patient age, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, which which bring us to not all uh, clinical parameters and algorithm are equal, right? So uh, some people include uh, mitotic rate uh, and others don't. Some, some people uh, include location and histologic type. Can you just, uh, uh, to, to complete the discussion, weigh in on, on uh, this variability and, uh, and uh, what, uh, how, how is that affecting? So first of all, it's important to look at your specific outcome of interest because sentinel lymph node positivity is not exactly the same as distant metastasis, something like this. So if you if you uh, look uh, at at outcomes like uh, relapse, you know, uh, relapse free survival, like something like this, um, then mitotic rate might have a heavier weight, but might be more important. But for this question of who presents with a sentinel lymph node biopsy uh, with a positive center lymph node, um, mitotic rate was not that strong of a predictor. So that's why it's, for example, um, not in the, in the classifier. Um, and yeah, in general, we, 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 uh, we took this approach of designing many of models just based on these clinical path variables. And we found that in the end, you reach a limit as to where you can go with just using these types of variables, sort of like, you know, this upper limit of, of performance. And 
you didn't really need to combine eight, nine different clinical path variables. In the end, just two were enough and everything added didn't increase performance very much. So yeah, we that, that's why we ended up with Bastodeps and, and patient age because and, you know, everything in addition to that just didn't improve the performance of the model uh, very much. And then we, ha- we have this, um, uh, this gene expression profile that you just mentioned where I would say functionally it has, has a very heavy uh, sort of, it's, it has an emphasis on vasculature um, because you look at some of these genes, interleukin-8 induces um, angiogenesis. There's things in there like GDF-15, which is sort of like a macrophage inhibitory cytokine, something like this, also involved in driving, um, um, you know, angiogenesis and and, and vasculature. Um, and uh, integrin beta-3 famously is expressed on, you know, um, vasculature. Um, and so there's sort of a big, heavy component um, of these uh, types of genes that that are measured in, in the Merlin assay. Um, TGF-beta receptor type 1 is, is another one. Um, yeah, so that's that's the gene expression profile that we then combine with um, breast depth and patient age. Fascinating. Uh, and it's just also a... Uh... A, uh, a reminder, you know, to, to other translational researchers in the field, uh, many of them are among the audience, how, uh, you know, what is, you always identify the question, you decide uh, what exactly I'm trying to achieve, not just to prognosticate, can I help with this specific, and then try to build your classifier, uh, and it doesn't have to be just uh, gene expression, you can, if clinical parameter works, so be it, if proteins work, so be it, as long as you get the best uh, buck for your money, as you say. This is actually something that the guidelines committees, or the guideline guideline committee, the NCCN, for example, that they require, and which was something that I got alerted to by, by our statisticians here at Mayo, is that you always have to benchmark the new stuff you create to what's already there. So if you design a gene expression profile, you need to show that it kind of outperforms, you know, the the currently used standard clinical path variables. So that's why we always did that in all our, all, all our complications. We benchmark, you know, our combined models to just the, the clinical path models. Um, I also wanted to brag that um, a lot of the genes in the Merlin uh gene expression profile have actually been targeted by pharma. So pharmaceutical companies have targeted interleukin-8 and combined it with PD-1 for melanoma patients, and there's an added added effect. So it looks like a, like a promising therapy too. People have gone after this protein called GDF-15, which is part of the Merlin test. Um, and, and that seems to be, uh, that's in clinical trials right now. So we'll see. So, you know, it's not just sort of bunch of random genes that we assay, oh, but but we do believe that they have some functional relevance for actually driving metastasis. That's important. And uh, just just out of curiosity, uh, the assay reports each of these genes or you just give a score because I know it's a commercial assay now, or is that, how does it work? So, yeah, so the the reporting is sort of, you get like a binarized reporting. You get a low risk label or a high risk label. And if you have a low risk label, it means that your your risk of having a positive sentinel node um, is, is less than 5% and therefore you can forego sentinel biopsy. If you're high risk, you're above that 5% threshold and you should consider sentinel biopsy. 
So you don't you don't report everything under the hood. So which is finally a philosophical question, uh, because these issues are very important for us molecular pathologists and yeah. as we develop laboratory develop testing. So for example, in Mayo now, uh, uh, if uh, if if Mayo Lab is is amazing, if they develop a can they develop a laboratory uh, test? If they develop a predictor, uh, is that uh, you? I guess what I'm saying. Is it all going to become just commercialized testing, and and uh, and we can't uh, we can't improve upon or try uh, to develop uh, cheaper or, or academic based testing for these things? So my hope is that actually these um, these tests will become available as sort of like point of care uh, tests, where um, you know everybody can sort of run them in their own um, uh, clinical labs. In fact, um, this company that is commercializing. Um, the Merlin test um, is working on with another company called Biocardis who are mm -hmm. selling this Adila platform. Yeah. So, you know, the idea is to, uh, you know, uh, develop a cartridge where you could just like pop in the paraffin tissue and then it would, you know, you could run the test in your own lab so you wouldn't have to send it out to, to some other person's lab. I like that. That's great because and it, I want it, it to be combines cheap. both. In one yeah. hand, it has the, you know, there is a lot of uh, advantages to kits and commercialized tests because consistency and performance. Uh, but if uh, if you make it toward, uh, we can bring it back to to the hospital and everybody have access to it. Yeah, and, uh, and that's uh, the Idela system is I, I think that you're referring to. Yeah, is perfect for that, and and you can then keep adding cartridges to different tests and and it empowers both. It's incredible. Like that was always my dream when I was in the research lab, kind of like doing the the extraction of RNA and just like doing these thousand steps. And now um, you just like pop it into a machine. It's all yeah. automated. You and then shave you have a few shaves of paraffin and just even my fellow who wasn't molecularly uh, trained, uh, ran a lot of assays for MSI, I think, uh, on prostate for this. So, so. yeah. Uh, that tells you how easy and how well better. Well, uh, Alex, is, uh, it, it was a very enjoyable conversation and very inspiring uh, to a lot of uh, young uh, translational scientists and uh, translational pathologists and molecular pathologists who are in the audience. And uh, hopefully some of them will be the next discoverer of such, such tests that will help us all, both clinicians and pathologists. It's been a it's been a great journey, and if you have a chance to do any type of research, do it um, because uh, it's 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 fun. I really enjoyed the the, the whole trip here, so the whole um, discovery uh, work and everything, and very impactful. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of Modern Pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.